0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to be the church gathered together. At this point in time, the kids, uh, little ones, can be dismissed to learn God's word, to be discipled, invested in. As they make their way out, please, please pray for them. Please pray that God's word, word would root in their hearts and work in their lives and bring about repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good, I, I just want you to know, I, I absolutely love what I do. I love being a pastor, I love being a shepherd, I love proclaiming God's word, and um, one of the things I pray is that, uh, every single week is that God would help me preach as a dying man to dying men. That was a prayer of Richard Baxter, a, a Puritan in the 1600s, and that was his prayer every week, that, that he would preach as a dying man to dying men, and, and that's, that's what I'm doing here today. Um, I'm not literally dying that I know of, but you get the idea. We are here just for a short time and times are urgent and it's good to gather together to hear God's word. Well, I want to begin by saying that to belong to the church is infinitely more significant than most people have ever realized. I'm going to say that again because you need to feel that. To belong to the church is infinitely more significant than most people have ever realized. You see, to say that you are in the church is to make one of the most weighty and significant statements of which a human being is capable. And when I say church, I don't want you to think in terms of a building, but a body of redeemed souls, I don't want you to think location, but I want you to think a living organism of ransomed sinners. I don't want you to think primarily uh, geographically, but I want you to think theologically about souls from every nation singled out and selected for salvation. That is the church. You see, to be in the church, get this, is to make a significant spiritual statement about the status of your soul, which has Trinitarian roots stretching back in time to before the world began. See, to be in the church means that you and I are a part of something infinitely bigger than our lives. You know why? Because there is a cost to get you into the church, and it was not cheap. You see, it took the slaughtering of the Son of God to get you into the church. Membership into the church required the admission fee of the death of God in human flesh in our place, which means, which means the next time you say that you are a part of the church, you had better tremble. Because you realize, don't you? You realize that the church alone is what Jesus bought with His blood. The church alone is the only institution that King Jesus ever promised to build. The church alone is the bride of Christ and the body of Christ and a kingdom of priests. The church alone is the special object of his divine affection. The church alone is the pillar and support of the truth. Get this, the church alone is the primary instrument that he uses to advance his plan in the church. And we are a church. And I realize that on the surface, we may not look like much this morning. 60 or so people. We don't even have our own building. I don't have an office in a church somewhere. We are virtually unknown in the DFW area. Tommy called us the underground church of Arlington. And so it's true that on the surface, on the surface, our church may not, may not look like much, but be that as it may, we are nevertheless a part of what God is doing in human history. And so that means, that means that heaven and hell are literally at stake in what we decide to do with this little ministry. And you know, a few weeks ago, I, I spent Thursday morning with the senior saints in this church and at breakfast, and, and, and I heard them retell the, the exciting history of this church, how back in the 70s, how, how God moved in, in hundreds of people from Pantego Bible Church and, and Believers Bible Church to bring this church into existence. And as I heard them recount the the story of of hundreds of conversions and and people hungry for powerful preaching, as I I heard about the the drought of expository preaching and and the passion for lost souls that brought this church into existence, I can't help but wonder if we once again are on the brink of something utterly profound. I can't help but wonder if King Jesus may see fit again to use this little flock to recapture the passion that the original founders of this church had to make a lasting global impact, not only in Arlington, but also in Judea and Samaria and in the remotest parts of the earth. And that's why, that's why we're going to spend the next two weeks to talk about what the church is to be and do in the world. As you know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a series on the letter to Titus, which is all about the church. And I thought, okay, before we start a letter to Titus, which is about the church, I think we need to pause and we need to get to the bottom of why this thing called the church and not something else exists. In other words, what I mean is God could have designed anything he darn well pleased to advance his plan into the world and yet what he designed was the church. And we've got to find out why. Why it exists, what it means, and how you can be a part of what God is doing in human history. And so all I want to do in the next two weeks is I want to recalibrate your thinking and I want to recapture your passion. I want to recalibrate your thinking about the church and I want to recapture your passion for the church. Because I'm not not saying that you've been influenced by it, but there is so much garbage out there as to what people think the church is to be and do. There's so many gimmicks And fads and flash in the pan pizzazz that seems exciting and and vibrant on the surface, but in the end it it splutters and fizzles and grinds to a halt and it doesn't actually do anything for the mission. Now, Now don't get me wrong here, don't get me wrong. If Christ wants this church to explode overnight with hundreds of people next week, that's up to him. I'm not asking for that. But what I am asking for is that God would give us the grace to implement the priorities from his word to make this church an unassailable church, an invincible church built on the kind of foundation to make it have a global impact even hundreds of years after all of us are dead. That's what I'm asking for. And so here we go. Two of the most basic foundational and strategic weeks in the life of this church. And here's where we're going. Maybe, maybe you don't have notes, but here's the roadmap. This morning and next week, I want you to see eight priorities. Eight priorities. And since I like adjectives so much, and especially hyphenated adjectives, non-negotiable priorities. (laughs) Eight non-negotiable priorities to which we must be committed as a church if we ever hope this church will make an impact for eternity. That's where we're headed. Eight non-negotiable priorities to which we must be committed as a church if we want this church to make an impact for eternity. And by all means, we absolutely do want that, don't we? So priority number one, you must revere the builder of the church. I should say we have eight points, eight priorities for this week, for next week. And all of them begin with the letter R because why not have alliteration? So number one, you must revere the builder of the church. You must revere the builder of the church. Now, we need to be absolutely clear here. We need to be clear because if we're going to talk about the church and we're going to talk about the builder of the church, we first have to go back and we have to define what the church even is, don't we? We desperately need to define our terms here. And the church, as you know, is people. It's people. It's not primarily a place or a location or a a physical designation with an address. No, the church is people. It is a body of redeemed souls. It's a living organism of ransomed sinners. The church, the church universal, the whole church is souls from every nation singled out and selected for salvation in Jesus Christ. That is the church. And you see, what's really interesting is that the Greek word church it's a very interesting term. The, the, the word in Greek is ekklesia. Ekklesia. Ek meaning from or out of. Klesia meaning called out. Put it together. We are the called out ones. We are those called out and chosen we are a curious and conspicuous community, distinct and different from the world, who still live in the world, who have a global mission to the world. You see, the church, if you think about, if you think about what the church is, it is a staggering theological reality. I mean, what's happening in this moment is profoundly theological You see, the church is a gathering of souls. Get this. The church is a gathering of souls picked out and predestined by the Father, purchased and paid for by the Son, preserved and protected by the Spirit who are embarking together on the most loving and dangerous mission in the universe called the Great Commission. That is the church. And that ain't no joke because that means that the church is literally the primary instrument of the Trinity to advance his plan and put his glory on display. Can you think of anything more significant than that? Anything? You can't think of anything, can't you? because there is nothing more significant than what the triune God is doing in human history. And guess what? The church is at the center of all of it. And you see, the thing that makes the church different The thing that makes the church different and distinct and set apart from colleges and seminaries and Lions Club and the ladies Red Hat Club and and missions organization and Campus Crusade and Bikers for Jesus or any other group for that matter. The thing that makes the church different and distinct is that the church has a builder a sovereign and divine builder and savior and architect who not only bought the church, but he builds the church. Because you remember his words to Peter, don't you? If you have notes there in your notes, Matthew 16, 18. Peter just confessed the greatest confession known to man, namely that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, to which Christ responds. That's right, Peter. That's right, that's exactly who I am. That is precisely who I am. And oh, by the way, I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice the first person of the verb, I shall build my church. Notice, notice the future tense of the verb that guarantees the outcome of the prediction. I will, I shall build my church. This is going to happen, and no one's gonna stop me. And I dare them to even try. Notice that the, the object that he promised to build, I shall build my church. That is, people, souls from every nation, handpicked by the Father to be ransomed by the Son. Notice the possessiveness over the object he builds. I shall build my church. This is mine. I own it. I build it. I bought it. I own it. My rules, my house, I call the shots. It belongs to me. And then notice the invincibility of the church. I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail Against it. See, that is the church. Bought with a price, and the only thing that Jesus Christ ever promised to build. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. You see, if Christ community, hear me, if Christ community is going to be a healthy church that makes an impact for eternity, the first priority that we have to remember is that the church has a builder. The church has a husband. The church has a head. And it is the God who became man the Lord Jesus Christ, and of that reality, there are three implications. Three implications of the fact that the church has a builder. Here they are. Number one, if the church has a builder, that means that the primary preoccupation of the church is to be infatuated with the one who bought the church. Because that only makes sense, doesn't it? That a people redeemed from hell by sovereign grace would revere more than anything else in the universe the very one who bought the church. If we are going to be known and defined by anything, Christ's community is that we are infatuated with Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. Implication number two, the fact that the church has a builder. There's a flip side to that coin of, of loving Christ. There's a flip side to that coin because, get this, to love the one who builds the church automatically means that you must love the church that he builds. See, this is his bride. This is his body. It's a package deal you don't love one without the other there is no authentic love for the savior if there is indifference to the church that he came to save let me put it to you this way and this is shocking but radical cutting-edge allegiance to Jesus Christ is only conceived of in the Bible as happening in the context of the local church In other words, true affection and allegiance to Jesus Christ finds its greatest expression in the affectionate attachment to a local church, however imperfect though that church may be. Implication number three, the fact the church has a builder. Since the church is bought and built and owned by King Jesus, that very clearly means that the church does not belong to you or to me or to anybody else see we don't make the rules we we don't get to just decide whatever we want no we be and do whatever the lord of the church has commanded us to be and do whatever he says to preach in his word that we preach Whatever he says to prioritize as a church, that we prioritize. Whatever he says to pursue as our mission, that we pursue as our mission, and we just trust the sovereign builder of the church that he knows what he's talking about and that he has spoken in his word. The church is too priceless to just hijack it and make it all about our personal preferences. No, Jesus Christ has spoken in the pages of Holy Scripture and what he wants his church to be and do. That is exactly what we're going to be and do. The church has a builder and him we must revere. Non-negotiable priority number two. You must remember, you must remember the strategic place of the church in the plan of God. You must remember the strategic place of the church in the plan of God. Because that's the question, isn't it? Why the church rather than nothing? (laughs) In other words, why this thing called the church rather than something else instead of the church? Do, Do you see the question? Again, God could have designed anything he darn well pleased to advance the Great Commission, and yet what he designed was the church, which, honestly, kind of seems a bit clumsy, doesn't it? I mean, really? I mean, mean, is the church really the best way to advance the Great Commission? I mean, have you seen us lately? Have you seen human beings? Well, guess what? The church is the perfect way to advance the Great Commission. Apparently, because that's the very thing that God has ordained. You see, the church, rather than something else, is God's primary instrument to advance the plan of salvation. And and think about what the plan of salvation is. Do you know what it is? Do, Do you know what God is doing in human history? You remember that God created the world with people in his image to multiply and fill the earth with his glory. You with me? We all know that. But as you know, the virus of sin sunk the human race and mutilated the the image of God, subjecting mankind not not just to death, but even to eternal ruin and despair. But God had a plan because he always had a plan. And the plan was always that a savior would come and solve the dilemma of sin and bring blessing to the ends of the earth and one day make all things be the way they ought to be. And, and we read on and this savior deliverer to come would come from the descendants of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people whom he chose. But then we find out that out of the 12 tribes that make up the Jewish people, that the deliverer to come would come from the tribe of Judah. And then we read a little further on and we see that the deliverer would come from the family line of David and that he would be a king with an eternal kingdom and he would reign forever. And then we find out only to find out in in the Psalms and the prophets that he's not just a man, but God himself who came to earth as a man. But then the plot thickens in Isaiah. who who tells us that the sovereign king would also be a suffering servant and he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth and how he would do that would be by dying in the place of the very people who deserved to die. He would literally, get this, reverse the effects of sin by taking the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. And he would redeem a race of people from every nation and make them a kingdom and priests who would reign on the earth just like Adam and Eve were supposed to do. But what he never told Israel In fact, what he never revealed until we get to the New Testament is that the way he would get salvation to the ends of the earth would be through a message called the gospel spread through local gatherings of redeemed people called the church. Do you see That is the strategic place of the church in the plan of God. We are outposts of good news. We are outposts of joy in a world of despair. Do you want proof? Do you want proof that the church is really that big of a deal in the plan of God? See, if you just took the book of Ephesians, just the book of Ephesians, and everything it said about the church you would walk away gripped by the awesome centrality of the church in the plan of God. For instance, and all of these texts are in your notes, but chapter one, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Paul just said that Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. But then he goes on to say in verse 22 that the Father gave him, the one who has all supremacy and authority, the Father gave him to be head over the church. Think about that just for a minute. The one who has all authority is the head of the church. He is not said to be the head over any other institution, just the church. Which verse 23 goes on to describe as... His body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you know what that means? It means that Christ fills all things, meaning his glory is displayed throughout all the universe, to be sure, but that the clearest, most explicit display, the most concentrated display of who Jesus Christ is, is his body, the church. That's what Paul just said. In other words, the way to discover and behold who Jesus Christ is is by looking at his body, the church. The stakes are high. Do you see it? The stakes are so high in what we do and be as a church. Your mission, oh church, should you choose to accept it, is to reflect and portray who Jesus Christ is to the world. And then you take chapter two, verses 21 and 22. Chapter two, 21 and 22, that that says that the the church is a holy temple in the Lord and, and a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Meaning what? Meaning where the church is is where God is because where the church is or at least where it is is supposed to be a place where God is revealed and displayed and worshiped and enjoyed. If someone wants to know what God is like, all they have to do is look at the church. That kind of language is not used about anything else in the universe. And I know that someone is saying well, but does not the Bible say creation displays who God is? that what God made reveals what God is like, and that's true, and that's true, but it's very non-specific, isn't it? That's why it's called general revelation, because the clearest, most explicit, concentrated display of what God is like is through the church. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 10, and Paul says the most astonishing thing, And he says that that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the angelic beings in the heavenly places through the church. And we get this sense, we get this sense that God is orchestrating this plan and the angelic beings are sitting in the heavenly bleachers and they're watching this thing go, go on just astonished at what God is doing. And it's all so that God would be praised. And what that means is that the church is not a matter of personal preference, but of cosmic significance. And then finally, chapter 3, 20 and 21. Subtle, but so profound. Paul says, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, Here it is. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus unto all the generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you hear that? To God be the glory. Not just anywhere. And and not just in anything as if all things were created equal because they're not. No, to God be the glory in the church. Meaning what? That no other institution can give him glory? No, it's that the church is God's primary instrument to put his glory on display. And many people in the church today have very low values and, and, and estimations as, as to the local church. Many people, most people probably don't feel about the local church the way the Apostle Paul or Christ himself felt about the church. And, and the reason for that is because so much of what they see in the church today is so pitiful and sad. Because to be sure, maybe there's a lot of flash and pizzazz And tons of bells and whistles. And and no question, people might leave the building entertained, but they don't leave with a sense that they just have encountered the living God. In the parking lot, back to their cars, their souls don't burn with a staggering vision of a a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe. They don't leave with a sense that they are on a mission more urgent than World War III. You see, that is the church. I mean, no wonder, yeah. no wonder people gravitate towards parachurch ministry rather than local church ministry because what they see the local church doing is either fakey or boring. I mean, at least parachurch ministries have a mission. We have a mission too. We have a mission too, and it is the most urgent and loving and dangerous mission in the universe called the Great Commission. So why the church rather than something else? Because the church is the living organism designed to reflect authentic resurrection power to a world clamoring for meaning in a world of despair. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready in the weeks and months and years to come to learn the place of the church in the plan of God? Are you ready to let God's word shape and adjust and if necessary, demolish your understanding of what the church is to be and do? Because we're going places as a church and I want you, all of you, to come with me. Are you ready for that? And speaking of what the church is to be and do, that brings me to priority number three. Number three, you must realize the mission of the church. You must realize the mission of the church because no doubt, no doubt, everyone in this room has heard the analogy that churches are like hospitals, right? Churches are like hospitals, Hospitals exist to heal and rehabilitate the wounded and sick. Churches exist to heal and rehabilitate wounded sinners. And and to be sure, that's not a bad analogy. There is some truth to that. But like all analogies, it doesn't take very long before that analogy begins to break down. Because although churches are like hospitals, they are not exactly like hospitals. You see, so many professing Christians in America have this, this warped notion that churches and even Christianity itself exists primarily to improve their personal quality of life. Does that sound familiar? That's what most people are thinking. That churches exist primarily to improve their personal quality of life. That, that, that Christ and the church exists to make them feel better and improve their self-esteem and give them healthier, happier lives and help them turn over a new leaf and, and add a little more zing to their marriage. And unfortunately, appeal though that may to our cravings for comfort and personal fulfillment, that is simply not the vision of the church that the Bible gives. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. The church does, I repeat, it does exist to rehabilitate sinners. It does the church is a recovery room for ransomed sinners and recovering idolaters. But hear me when I say that that recovery is not an end in itself. Rather, the mission of the church, the whole job of pastors, is to repair wounded sinners to go back out there and fight in the trenches of the Great Commission. And speaking of the Great Commission, that's exactly what the mission of the church is. And you know the text well, don't you? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, so familiar but so profound. As I read the text, I want you to to hear this text as if you were hearing it for the very first time. You remember that the risen Christ meets his disciples on a mountain in Galilee just like he commanded them. And with their hands shaking and heart Trembling and their faces bowed down to the ground in worship, he comes up and he says some very solemn words. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you hear that? Your mission, all of your mission, should you choose to accept it, and you had better accept it or you waste your lives, is to make disciples of all the nations. That is the mission to which you, all of you, are called. Now, I know, I know automatically when I read this text and I say that, that most people assume cross-cultural missions. That, I, that I'm saying you should get on a plane and go overseas and, and spend your life proclaiming the gospel in a foreign land and in so doing, people automatically assume that this text doesn't apply to them. And so I want to shift your thinking a little bit this morning Listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Because what you're about to hear is so crucial to the life and future of this church. Are you ready? Here it is. Everything the church does is great commission work. It's all making disciples That command making disciples is the banner under which everything else the church does falls. Directly or indirectly everything we do is making disciples that plant churches, that reach God's elect, that advance the Great Commission. Yes, a central component of the Great great Commission is that some are sent overseas to go behind enemy lines and reach the nations with the gospel to be sure. But hear me when I say that those who go and those who stay have the exact same mission which is make disciples who make disciples who make disciples until eventually the elect are reached and the mission is over the question is did you know that did you know that your mission as a that your mission as a christian is not just the moral improvement of your life but the joining of a mission as your life? I'm taking the bells as celebratory of what I'm saying here because it's, it's just so profound, right? Um, let me say that again. Did you know that your mission as a Christian is not just the moral improvement of your life, but the joining of a mission as your life? Did you know that your mission And your occupation as a Christ follower is to make disciples regardless of your age or occupation. And yet the burning question is, what what does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean? And and how do you do it? Well, what it means, get this now, is not just that you share the gospel, although that's included. I'm, I'm including that also. That's included. But it's not only that. Rather, to make disciples, get this, To make disciples is the entire process from conversion to maturation. From baby to maturity where you are intentionally investing the word of God into the life of another person. Teaching, instructing, counseling, exhorting, warning, even rebuking. And put it this way, and listen very carefully. Discipling one another, which you are all called to do, discipling one another, assumes that we don't have it all together. Right, we're just gonna be really honest this morning and say that we're just gonna be honest and admit freely that all of our lives are in desperate need of fixing. Agreed. We limp into church, oftentimes followed by a trail of blood. And some days we're just trying to stop the bleeding. And so we just need to drop all pretensions this morning and admit that we are sinners. And in so doing, admit that we are incredibly needy and desperate for help. So my point is very simply this, we can't do this Christian thing on our own. We come into the Christian life as ruined sinners in desperate need of fixing, needing to be repaired with the Word of God, not just to make us feel better, but to fight in the trenches of the Great Commission. And repairing wounded sinners to fight in the trenches of the Great Commission is exactly what the mission of the church is. Because isn't that exactly what Jesus just said? Didn't he just say that? Did he not say that making disciples is the ministry of investing intentionally the word of God into one another's lives? Did he not say that? He did say that because look at verses 19 and 20 again. The, The command, make disciples... That is the main verb. That's the main command. But baptizing and teaching, those are helping verbs that explain exactly what making disciples looks like. And what exactly, when you look at the text, what exactly did Christ say to teach those who you are discipling? What did he say to teach those you are discipling? Everything I commanded you. Teach it all. Teach it all. A to Z, give them the whole counsel of God and teach them how to live it. Come alongside someone and help them collect the dots of the Christian life and then help them connect the dots of the Christian life. That's the Great Commission. It's not just evangelism. It is the intentional, persistent, faithful investment of the word of God into their lives after you evangelize them. Colossians 3.16 put it like this. Listen very carefully. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Did you hear that? Not just let the word of God Dwell in you richly as if that were an end in itself. No, do so so that with wisdom you may teach and invest in others. I mean, imagine it like this. Imagine, and this is not hard to imagine. Imagine that everyone in the world is sick with a terminal disease. Everyone. And a physician comes up with a brilliant idea of building a hospital Not just where people get well, but he also makes the hospital with a built in medical school to train his healed patients to be physicians who are then sent to other needy areas who built hospitals with built in medical schools. You follow? And at those medical schools, they train healed patients to be physicians who are then sent to build more hospitals with more built-in medical schools who train and send others, who train and send others, who train and send others. Newsflash! That is the mission of the church. It's multiplication. It's multiplication. It's generational impact, do you see? You are the physicians. This is the clinic. The Word of God is the vaccine. And your mission, all of your mission is not just to help others be well, but to train them to be physicians who make physicians, who make physicians. You see? This is the mission of the church. And this is where we're going as a church. Because it's as the hymn says, we go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled, No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition. To God we yield our powers. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has the power to save except Jesus Christ the Lord. From cowardice, defend us. From lethargy, awake. Forth on thine errand send us to labor for thy sake. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord where we're going last but certainly not least we've got four more points after this this is the last one for this morning non-negotiable priority number four you must rest upon the foundation of the church you must rest upon the foundation of the church because you know just as well as i that that lots of people in america talk a lot about unity Don't they? Unity in the church. You know what we need? We just need unity. We need to be a unified church. If we could just be unified and united together, if we could just be one together, then finally we could be the church we've always wanted to be. Right? Haven't you always heard that in every single church you've ever been a part of? And and that's right. Unity is right and good and biblical. Biblical and necessary and essential for the Great Commission. The problem is, most people have zero idea what biblical unity actually means and how it's produced in a local church. I don't mean that in a snarky way, I just mean that most people have not examined the biblical evidence for what unity actually is and and how it's actually produced in a local church because what would you say? I'm not saying answer out loud necessarily. But if you were stopped on the street and someone stuck a microphone in your face and they said, okay, tell me, churchgoer, how is unity produced in the local church? What's the key? What produces unity in the local church? Again, not out loud, but what would you say? Think about it. You want to hear the answer? I've got an answer. You knew that, though. You knew that, though, didn't didn't you? The answer is this. and, And you're almost not going to believe what you're about to hear. The thing that produces true authentic unity in the church, here it is, is doctrine. It's doctrine. (laughs) Actually, let me clarify that. Sound doctrine is the basis of all authentic unity in the church. Actually, let me clarify that even a little bit further. True unity only happens in the local church when the people in it submit to what the scripture says. That is the basis and foundation of all authentic unity in the local church. That. Unity only happens when people submit to what the text says in the pages of Holy Scripture, which I know sounds counterintuitive. I I know it. I know it. But trust me when I say that doctrine is not the liability that brings disunity, but is the very thing that produces true unity in the church. And I know what you're thinking. Prove it, Jared. where Where do you get that crazy assertion in the text? Well, I'll show you where I get it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Ephesians 4, verse 3. Where Paul says, Paul tells the church to be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be a unified church. How, Paul? How do do we do that? Tell us, how, how how does unity happen in the church, Paul? Very next verse. There is one body. Notice the repetition of the word one. There is one spirit. Even as you were called in one hope of your calling, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What on earth, Paul, are you talking about? Well, it's clear, isn't it? What he's talking about are doctrinal convictions. That's what that is. That's what verses four through six is. How do, you be, how do you keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? The doctrinal convictions and commitments that he names because those are doctrinal commitments and convictions that connect us and define us and serve as the basis for what it even means to be a church. That serves as a basis for what it means to even be a Christian. You can't be unified unless there is something to be unified over, to be unified in, unless there's something that produces unity. And what produces the unity is sound doctrine, loved and prized and believed and treasured and read and savored in the local church. Here's another one. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Paul says that pastors in the local church are to equip the saints for the work of service, for the edification of the body. That was my job description. Did you catch it? My job, Rich's job, Larry's job, Pachi's job, also known as Charles, sorry. Our job is to equip the saints. That's what we exist to do. The question is, for how long? To what end? To produce what? Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of of the faith. And the knowledge, notice the word knowledge, and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you see it in the text, the unity of the faith? And here's what's really interesting, the word the faith there, that that, that Greek term indicates that is not the subjective faith with which we believe, it is the object that we believe in. You have to understand that word, the faith, that's a technical term. Get this, that's a technical term in the New Testament to describe the comprehensive collection of doctrines that make Christianity what it is. You want proof? Acts 6-7 describes those who were obedient to the faith. Galatians one twenty three. Paul says that he was preaching the faith. Colossians one twenty three. Paul says to continue in the faith and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. See how he juxtaposes those two, the faith and the gospel. He equates them. 1 Timothy 3.9, Paul talked about the mystery of the faith. 1 Timothy 4.6, Paul says to constantly be nourished on the words of the faith. Titus 1.9 says that pastors are to refute false teachers with bad doctrine so that they will be sound in the faith, so that they will believe right things. And last but not least, in the face of false teachers bringing heresy into the church, Jude says to contend earnestly for the faith. The faith, definite article, is doctrine. And doctrine rightly believed and treasured and proclaimed is the basis for all unity within the church my point is very simply this truth scripture doctrine dare i say theology that's the foundation of the church or maybe put it this way it is the nuclear core reactor that empowers the church to be the instrument that breaks open the world. I mean, hear me, church, I mean that the word of God is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. And that the essence of a healthy church I need you to hear this. The essence of a healthy church is when those in it invest in the lives of one another with the word of God. I'm almost done, but, but recently my father-in-law told me the, a true story about a guy, a businessman that he knows who uh, hired a, a company in, in China to do some work for him. He hired this company and this guy goes on a business trip to China to check on the, the company that he hired. And, and while there, he, he scheduled a, a visit with one of the factories, the Chinese factories that, that he had hired. And, um, and he shows up and the whole place is just bustling with activity. There's machines and employees and workers and everyone's got their lab coats and they've got their goggles and there's assembly lines and everything is in fine, perfect working order and he has his meeting and he's very pleased, very satisfied with the progress and he leaves very satisfied with what he saw until, that is, he, forgot, he realized that he forgot something back at the factory and so he turns around from the airport and comes back to the factory unannounced, only to find the entire factory disassembled and being loaded onto trucks. And in that moment, he realized that the entire operation was a complete sham. (laughs) There was no factory at all. There was no factory. It was just an elaborate set, a a simulated reproduction, a complete forgery that had all the appearances of life and productivity. But in the end, it was just a fancy facade to fool the eye. My point is very simply this. We could do, church, we could do the razzle, me dazzle, fancy schmancy church growth methods and programs that would have all the appearance of life and vitality and, and momentum, but without expository ministry of the word as the nuclear core of our church. All we are is just an elaborate Hollywood set that can't change anybody's lives. We have got to hold the line, church. We have got to hold the line of sound doctrine in our hearts and in our homes and in our church. If we ever want this church to be all that we all want it to be and what we all want this church to be, tell me I'm wrong, what we all want this church to be is a launch site for global ministry. Do we not? What we want this church to be is to be a church that makes ripple effects into eternity for the glory of Christ. Do we not? Don't we want this church to be a hundred years from now? A church known throughout the DFW area, maybe even in the world as a power plant for the Great Commission? And if that's what we want, then what we must be is not fancy, but faithful not impressive in the eyes of the world, but submissive to the text of Scripture. Because the text of Holy Scripture is the instrument that not only changes lives, but changes the world through their lives. Do do you believe that? Do you believe that the Word of God is the most lethal instrument of change known to man? Do you believe that to read Holy Scripture is to hear God speak? Do you believe that we owe the same reverence to Scripture that we owe to God as Calvin said? Do you believe, are we all in agreement that the Word of God faithfully proclaimed and invested into the lives of other people is the catalyst to make that happen? I hope you believe that because that's where we're going. That's where we're going As a church. And so again, I finish, I close with the question why the church rather than something else? You know the answer. You know exactly what it is. Because God's plan will advance, the darkness will be penetrated. Nations will be reached, lives will be changed through God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated churches that know that they have nothing to lose and everything to gain. And I want you to join me in praying every single day for Christ's community that we would be that kind of church. Because if we aren't that kind of church, or at the very least, on a trajectory to become that church eventually, then biblically speaking, we are not a church at all. But I'm not worried about that because that's what we will become by God's grace. So that's part one of the church unassailable. We must revere the builder of the church. We must remember the strategic place of the church in the plan of God. Number 3, we must realize the mission of the church, and number 4, we must rest on the foundation of the church. That's 4 out of 8. The sequel comes next week, and I cannot wait. Let's go to the Lord of the Church in prayer. O oh, King Jesus, we acknowledge that this thing called the church is is bigger than we previously had imagined. Oh, Lord, this is a place to gather and meet friends. It is a place to have what some call community. It is that. It is a way to connect with others, with, with real human beings and, and to, over something that really matters, Lord. And it is that. It is that. But we know, Lord, we know that it's more than that. This is the instrument that you are using in human history. You use other instruments also, but the church is the primary one. And so, Lord, I pray for these people that they would be inspired, that they would be gripped, that they would be challenged, that they would be floored, that they would be excited, they would be thrilled, oh Lord, to be a part of what you are doing in human history and what you are doing in human history is using everyday undeserving people like us to advance the Great Commission. So we give you thanks, Lord, and we just long, we long to see you work in our church in such a way so that the only explanation is a sovereign God doing the supernatural. And it's in the matchless name of Christ that we pray. Amen.